0: everyone. My name is Dr. Art Lazarus. I'm the medical director for MD Group. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, we want to highlight mental health, especially uh, as this month is Mental Health Awareness Month. Uh, specifically, we want to talk about uh, the clinical and research aspects of mental health which, as you all know, have, have been uh, highlighted by the pandemic over the past two years. And even prior to the pandemic, we do know uh, that that the mental anguish involved with people suffering from mental disorders, as well as the costs in terms of lost productivity, uh, are, have been staggering. Um, so with that in mind, um, I've asked one of my nearest and dearest friends, Dr. Andrew Cutler, to join us. Uh, like me, Dr. Cutler is a psychiatrist, and he's uh, also trained in internal medicine. Um, I will fondly refer to him as Andy, as I have known him for several decades, uh, as well as his uh, beautiful family, including his wife and two uh, high school sons who, when I first met them, were knee-high and are now towering above me. Uh, Dr. Cutler has a very long and distinguished career in psychiatry, having conducted research for the past 30 years in in various um, therapeutic modalities. Um, and in various psychiatric disorders, including, for example, depression, and ADHD, uh, schizophrenia, and bipolar disorder, uh, Dr. Cutler um, is, is really the psychiatrist, psychiatrist, uh, he's well known in our field. And I am so happy to Andy to have you with us today that you can join us for this important discussion on mental health disorders.
1: Well, sure, Art, I have to uh, echo your comments and your warm sentiments. It's a pleasure to be here with you. And I'm looking forward to our conversation. There is a lot going on in our field. Uh, My background, uh, as you mentioned, I trained in both internal medicine and psychiatry, but I also did research training on dopamine receptor pharmacology. And that led me to clinical research around conditions that have to do with imbalance of the dopamine system. So you mentioned ADHD depression, bipolar, and schizophrenia, which don't necessarily sound related, but they all have in common dopamine dysregulation. I've been doing psychopharmacology research, so research on mostly on new medications and treatments for these conditions for 29 years, and I have worked on pretty much every, <laughs> every uh, newer medication that we might use. Um, so I'm excited to share some of my information with you today and, and my enthusiasm really for what's going on.
0: Save that thought for a little bit later on, because you know, in in the era that I trained in, and 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 to a large extent you as well, we we were just uh, involved in two neurotransmitters, you know, serotonin and norepinephrine. We only we reserved dopamine as a neurotransmitter involved in schizophrenia, but as you mentioned, um, we we know that not to be true today. Well, it's true plus other conditions, um, and then there's some other exciting possible. Uh, neuromechanisms underlying mm-hmm. some mental disorders that I, I, I want um, to discuss with you. But I thought it would be appropriate, at least initially, to, to start on the clinical side, because we are both first and foremost clinicians. And I'm going to glance away just briefly, because I'm, I, I actually pulled up an article that I, that I um, conveniently read this morning. And it, um, it was written by a psychiatrist. And I'm just going to give you three takeaway bullet points, and, uh, and I want you to get, have your comments, get your comments on these bullet points, especially the third one. So the first two come primarily from the, the famous STAR-D trial, which, which I hope you can just briefly elaborate on for our audience. Um, and the first takeaway was that up to one-third of patients with major depressive disorder do not find relief with two antidepressants, they are the first two antidepressants that they are prescribed. Uh, which leads to the second bullet point that what has been called you know, treatment-resistant depression is perhaps better described as difficult to treat depression. And then finally, this was a novel thought, at least to me. Um, the author goes on to say that traditional ideas about depression need to be revised. It may be that depression should be staged like cancer. Now, that was a very mm-hmm. novel thought. Um, so I'd yeah. like your, 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 um, your reaction to that. And, and as a prelude to that, just briefly describe for our, our audience what the STAR-D trial accomplished.
1: Right. So the STAR-D trial was a large study that was sponsored by the National Institute of Mental Health. And the idea was to be more real world than some of the other clinical trials, which had a lot of inclusion and exclusion and a lot of stipulations. And basically it was uh, treating patients with major depression. These are not necessarily treatment resistant. These were kind of all comers and treat them using an algorithm of kind of the best thinking about how to treat depression. Now this study was performed about 20 years ago now. The first step, there were four steps in this trial. The first step was everybody was treated with an SSRI, uh, in this case, citalopram, a very standard first-line antidepressant at maximal dose for 12 weeks. And I think we would all agree that that is an adequate dose and an adequate duration. And at the end of those 12 weeks, what was shown was that Uh, about uh, two-thirds, maybe two-thirds of of patients responded, but only about a third of the patients got into remission or had a really good response. So then they could go into the second stage when they could either switch or augment the medication. And as you mentioned, at the end of that phase, about 67% had, uh, had had some kind of response, but a third would be considered TRD or difficult to treat depression. And that's, That's really a modern definition now. Treatment-resistant depression is defined as failure to respond to two different antidepressants, adequate dose and adequate duration, in the current episode. Uh, And then, of course, with each subsequent step, the treatment got a little more heroic and uh, ultimately ECT could be used or some uh, really novel combinations. Now, as far as your comment about staging, I love that comment, actually, and I completely agree with it. I have a very good friend named Roger McIntyre, who's a very, very famous psychiatrist, head of mood disorders right. at the University of Toronto, and he's been talking about this idea of staging depression now for many years, and really, if you think about most of our treatments, you, you mentioned very clearly uh, that they work through serotonin and norepinephrine, our antidepressants, predominantly. Those are monoamines. It's like, kind of neurotransmitter. We now have treatments both available and in development that go beyond monoamines into other neurotransmitter systems that I'm sure we'll get into in a minute. And so the idea that we can stage this by first starting out with a monoamine type of antidepressant, maybe a couple monoamine manipulations and then move into others, you know, this tells me that depression is a very heterogeneous illness. And some people may respond to a monoamine, but some people's pathology means they need something different.
0: Let's talk about funding for mental health um, disorders and clinical trials in particular. Um, There's a huge cost hurdle involved in funding mental health trials, in part, as you know, because uh, the placebo rate uh, is relatively high in our discipline compared to other disciplines. Uh, And also... Possibly and probably because there's a built in stigma, uh, long standing stigma against mental health, mental health disorders, and individuals involved in the treatment of patients with mental health disorders. So, from your perspective um, over the last several decades, what have you seen in terms of funding of mental health disorders, willingness of uh, patients to participate in mental health disorders? And, and the extent to which mental health clinical trials have become global in nature.
1: Well, you're absolutely right that in my career, I, I have seen several changes in the way that clinical trials are funded. Uh, back when I started, a lot of the funding was from the government, from particularly the National Institute of Mental Health and other government agencies. And especially, there weren't as many pharmaceutical companies really uh, doing a lot in the the psychiatry field. I guess they felt there wasn't as much uh, money to be made or something like that. But then Prozac was released and that changed everything, which is fluoxetine and SSRI. Uh, There was a company, Eli Lilly, that started to, to sell a lot of that medication. And then a lot of companies, larger pharmaceutical companies started jumping in. And for many years, we had a lot of large pharmaceutical companies that were funding this kind of research. And the model was that they would discover a medication in their labs, they would take it through development, do the research necessary to get onto the market, get FDA approved, and then market and sell the medicines. Well, uh, a few years back, maybe 15 years ago, that model started to change because as you mentioned, a lot of our studies failed. As a matter of fact, about 50% of clinical trials in psychiatry fail. And so the larger companies which are publicly traded couldn't take those risks, because if they failed, they their stock prices essentially got hurt. So what we saw was now smaller biotechs and more privately funded kinds of companies started doing the early development. And then the larger companies would come in and partner with them later on, once the drug had gone through preliminary testing and showed a lot of promise and then take it into the market. And that's kind of the model now. Uh, We do see some smaller pharmaceutical companies and biotechs that actually develop their own sales and marketing wing and not necessarily partner with a larger company. So the field has really diversified quite a bit. And I would say that's really the biggest change that we're seeing now is this move towards uh, smaller biotechs and private funding earlier on and then others getting involved later. Another thing that's happened is some of the larger companies have actually set up smaller wings or divisions of their companies, almost like a biotech within a large pharmaceutical company, or they've started funding arms where they invest in these smaller companies. And by doing that, then they have first rights, if you will, to the drug if it if it shows promise and
0: goes further. I was about to say earlier, that it, that model is, is very, very interesting, certainly different than, than what I grew up in. And I worked in the pharmaceutical industry for over a dozen years for several large companies. And um, uh, now we're seeing uh, more of a, um, as you said, a kind of a, uh, um, a parceling out of the different phases of clinical trial and drug development um, and many more partners also involved in, in clinical trials um uh, one of the things that i've been interested in recently uh in terms of an, an, a newer and more innovative direction is decentralized clinical trials mm-hmm. and yes. um it's much like make, making house calls you know where mm-hmm. where the the components of the clinical trial that can be done uh at the patient's home um are done there as as opposed mm-hmm. to the investigator's site. Have you had any involvement in decentralized clinical trials to date?
1: Yes, I have. And this is another thing that's tra- changed pretty drastically, I'd say. When I started my career, most of the research sites or most of the places where, where research was done was academic centers. And then I, I was a former academic and left and started a private clinical trial site or a dedicated research site, and there were many others doing that. So then we had uh, the rise of the, the private sites. And then what started to happen now, as uh, technology has really changed the way we we do things in healthcare in general, uh, companies have started doing remote visits, remote ratings. Uh, It started out with centralized ratings. We'd do everything in the clinic, but then when it came to doing the rating scales to rate, let's say symptoms of depression, then the patient would do that by a video camera with a central rater. But we've gone beyond that now and especially, you mentioned COVID earlier, COVID has really accelerated this process because early in, in COVID in particular, people were staying home and we, you know, it was not, almost not safe to co- go to a clinic. So we've started doing trials now and there are even companies springing up that specialize in doing this kind of decentralized trial. And the, there are definite advantages. Uh, for instance, you can spread your reach to a farther geographic area to reach more potential patients. So they don't necessarily have to be just in my geographic catchment area. And then of course it is very convenient for a patient. They don't have to take time off from work or from family obligations as much to come to the clinic and do a visit. They can do it from comfort and convenience of their own home. Um, That has required some adaptations to how we do business. For instance, how do we dispense the medication? How do you get vital signs, EKGs, uh, various testing done and things like that. Uh, But there are ways around that. including home health nursing and staff and things like that. Or a patient can go to a local uh, laboratory to get their blood drawn, for instance, or local facility to get a radiology test done. So I've had some experience with these kinds of trials. And you know, there are definitely kinks and bugs that we're working out as, as any kind of new technology starts to change the way we do business. But I would say it's definitely the wave of the future. And I think we're going to have a hybrid world from now on you know, we're gonna have sort of a mix of live and virtual kinds of uh, visits.
0: Yes, I would agree with you. I'd, 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 hate, to th- I'd hate to think of uh, there being a silver lining to COVID um, given the staggering morbidity and mortality associated with it, but I do agree with you that it's prompted um, the whole field of telehealth and specifically um, clinical trial research uh, being done more remotely than, than ever before. So, so Andy, earlier uh, we were discussing, you know, difficult to treat patients uh, with major depressive disorder, which has led to a a, really, I would call it a revolution in psychiatry um, in in terms of newer therapies being investigated and and developed, um, as you pointed out, um, uh, medications that don't necessarily act on the monoamine system. Um, And so... um, To take it a step further, I've been very interested in a whole branch of our field of psychiatry um, which involved in non-drug therapy. Um, I I am aware of a few academic medical centers, as a matter of fact, that are developing subspecialties in psychiatry around the whole idea or area of interventional psychiatry. So I'm wondering if you could talk to some of these newer non- drug therapies uh, specifically for major depressive disorder. But of course, there are others that involve um, uh, interventions such as uh, vagal nerve stimulation, uh, mm-hmm. repetitive transcranial magnetic uh, stimulation, nerve stimulation, and, um, and, and other therapies along those lines. What can, what can you tell us about that? Well,
1: this has been another really big sea change in our field. Uh, Back when you and I trained, of course, we did have an intervention that was called ECT or electric convulsive therapy. And it's very effective, but of course it has many uh, risks and drawbacks and there's practical issues. You need anesthesia, recovery time, things like this. But uh, other modalities have come along to try to stimulate the brain in various ways. And you mentioned one of the biggest ones that's gaining wide acceptance is what we call TMS or transcranial magnetic stimulation. Uh, Those clinics are popping up all over the place. And really, it's very simple. It's a powerful magnet you put up uh, near the temporal lobe, and they map. Now it's gotten really uh, advanced and very digital with mapping. They can map various parts of the brain that they want to stimulate. And uh, this is is quite effective uh, for the appropriate patients. And it's nice because it's just simply putting the magnet up. There's no anesthesia. Patient is there for a while for the treatment and then goes home. then we have a little bit more invasive kinds of techniques you mentioned vagal nerve stimulation where an electronic stimulator is is literally implanted it stimulates a large nerve called the vagus nerve that connects right up into the brain and and seems to stimulate parts of the brain especially in the limbic system that have to do with emotions and then there is another modality called dbs or deep brain stimulation which is a really a much more invasive. Literally, probes are placed directly into the brain, so it does require neurosurgery, but it has been a very effective for patients who haven't responded to anything else. And there are some academic centers around the country that are doing that as well. Now, another modality I want to quickly mention is called PDT or prescription digital therapy. And this is software as a therapeutic. And there are a number of companies now developing these kinds of modalities. There are several in development. Um, So I I think that we're really gonna change the way we look at treating mental illness. And some of these modalities are used by themselves and some of them can be used in combination with medications. So really a new paradigm for thinking about how to treat people with depression and mental illness in general.
0: So it sounds like We have the full spectrum of treatments going from software to literally and figuratively hardware. Um, You know, it it reminds me, I'll keep this brief, but it reminds me when I was in uh, medical school in my final year, I I had a personal dilemma of choosing between psychiatry and neurology. I love both fields and I sort of melded them together, you know, in my own career uh, following training. But I, I went, I asked a very distinguished neurologist, I asked him his opinion whether I should go into psychiatry or neurology since I had an interest in both. And he said to me, well, Ark, he said, if, if you want my opinion, psychiatry one day will become a subspecialty of neurology. Uh, now, this was almost 40 years ago. Uh, he was a very forward-thinking neurologist, obviously. We quite, we haven't quite gotten to the point where psychiatry has been absorbed by neurology, but based it's on your, your, your recent comments, so uh, we are clearly headed in that direction. And vice versa, there's a whole field of neurology that's interested in, 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 in behavioral consequences of neurological disorders. So really uh, two true. sides of the same coin. But what I'd like to do so, now, I think, uh, Andy, is, um, is talk to you about um, more about um, newer therapies. And yeah. um, I'm reading a lot of, uh, about interest in something new that is also something quite old that even predated both of us in terms of our training, which is the use of hallucinogens in patients with yes. mental disorders. What can, What can you yes. tell us about that?
1: Well, you're absolutely right that it does predate us. As a matter of fact, one of my mentors in in residency at the University of Virginia, a man named John Buckman, had done some of the early work in the 1960s and 70s on using psychedelics in combination with psychotherapy to treat mental disorders. Um, And that was with LSD actually. And then it sort of fell out of favor. Of course, these drugs became schedule one, which means no therapeutic use and uh, people sort of went away from them. But recently, people have rediscovered the power of psychedelics and it appears that they can actually rewire parts of the brain and maybe even lead to very rapid synaptogenesis and uh, the formations of nerve cells um, that really can, can seem to be rapidly effective for mood disorders and some other disorders including PTSD and some anxiety disorders. So there are literally, there's over a hundred companies right now developing various forms of psychedelics based on LSD or mescaline or PCP or ayahuasca, and even there's drugs called empathogens and MDMA, for instance. Uh, Recently, some of these companies are even working on what they call second generation psychedelics, which don't have as much of the the hallucinogenic or psychotomimetic effects, and maybe more just therapeutic. But for the ones that do cause the the trip, if you will, psychedelic experience, Those are usually administered in a clinic with supportive psychotherapists uh, involved to help with the the experience. Um, So this is another thing that needs to be worked out. Of course, we have to figure out how often would you give such a treatment? What kinds of psychotherapy or or psychotherapists would be there? Uh, But I think that the the horse is out of the barn here that we're gonna be having these medications approved soon. Now, what's also interesting, some of the second generation psychedelics are not schedule one. not considered a highly abusable drug, so that will certainly make it more broadly available too.
0: You also mentioned n m d a Could you please tell our viewers uh what that is and what connection, if any, is there between the opioid system um, and 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 uh, and and the monoamine system or at least uh, newer treatments for individuals with major depressive disorder yeah. Well,
1: I, I believe you mean M- MDMA, uh, which I can use mm-hmm. often, there's NMDA receptors, they're glutamate receptors, and we should talk about those too. But MDMA is considered an empathogen rather than a psychedelic. And that's because it creates these feelings of closeness and warmth and, and emotional connectivity. Um, there are many connections between the uh, various systems involved in the brain such as these monoamine systems. The psychedelics in particular work through the serotonin system. Most of them are serotonin 5HT2A agonists, for instance, and they have other effects on monoamines, but the monoamine systems and the opioid system are very tightly linked, especially the opioid system and the dopamine system. And we know that opioids are very involved, of course, with emotions, but also with social connections and sociality. One of the things we know when people get depressed is they socially withdraw, for instance. So uh, there's, there may be ways to target various neurotransmitter systems to target various kinds of symptoms and symptom complexes. And that's another area that's uh, very hot right now too.
0: Really sounds like we are on the, on the verge of uh, an explosion in psychiatry with newer treatments. Um, treatments that are cutting edge, as well as you discussed earlier, treatments um, that were old that are being reformulated as as newer treatments. So what else do you see on the horizon for for mental health research in the future? Yeah.
1: Well, speaking about old is new, of course, one of the hottest areas is is the use of ketamine, which is an older drug. It was used as an anesthetic. And that now has been shown to be a very rapidly effective antidepressant. And people, the the problem with that, of course, is ketamine has to be delivered usually by an IV intravenous infusion and it can cause a real dissociative, almost psychotic-like state. There is a a newer form called S-ketamine. It's one of the isomers of ketamine that is now FDA approved. It's the only form of ketamine FDA approved to treat depression. It's delivered intranasally. people are really looking at other drugs and other ways to affect this glutamate system. Glutamate's very hot right now. And the particular receptor that ketamine works on is called the NMDA receptor. It's an ion channel receptor. And there are other drugs in development, oral drugs, that affect their antagonists of that receptor and are showing a lot of promise. There's a couple of them in late phase development right now, as a matter of fact. But then going beyond that, The brain as you probably know is a yin and yang of glutamate the major excitatory neurotransmitter and GABA the major inhibitory neurotransmitter well guess what there are drugs now that affect the GABA system they are GABA agonists that are shown to be rapidly effective antidepressants and so this is very interesting to me that you can affect depression either through the stimulatory glutamate system or the inhibitory GABA system Uh, So I'm very excited. You know, Art, when you and I trained, it was really the dawn of the second wave or the second generation of psychopharmacology. First wave, of course, started in the 50s and 60s with first generation antipsychotics, tricyclics, monoamine oxidase. Second wave, of course, was SSRIs and the atypical or second generation antipsychotics. That was the late 80s, early 90s. But now we are entering the third wave. We're going beyond these medicines which work predominantly on the monoamines, serotonin, norepinephrine, dopamine, and we're going into these other neurotransmitter systems. There's another class of drugs that are being developed that I'm excited about. You mentioned the opioid system. Well, the opioid system has three receptors. There's mu, delta, and kappa. Mu, if you stimulate mu, that's of course what we think about with the pain relieving opioids and the addictive ones. But the kappa receptor, if you antagonize that, there's a lot of evidence now but that's an antidepressant mechanism. And there's a couple of kappa antagonist drugs working through the opioid system uh, that are going to be uh, show a lot of promise again for depression. And then the field of schizophrenia or, or antipsychotic uh, medications or medications that work against psychosis. We're going into some really interesting areas. There are drugs that work through the acetylcholine system, muscarinic cholinergic agonists that are showing promise as antipsychotics. And then finally, there's a whole new neurotransmitter system called TAR. This is the trace amine-associated receptor system. And there are a couple of TAR1 agonists in development to treat schizophrenia. So a lot of exciting things going on.
0: So to wrap it all up, it, there's, it's no wonder that you earlier said that um, patients, for example, with depression are kind of a heterogeneous uh, population. Mm-hmm. Um, when you think about the... Uh, the underlying uh, uh, mechanisms and uh, neuromechanisms and mm-hmm. neurotransmitters involved in depression and other psychiatric disorders, then it it, 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 may, it makes sense that we have a wide array of these mechanisms that we're investigating and therefore that patients affected by various mental disorders are, are quite um, heterogeneous and in some ways very novel. So Andy, I'd like to end by um, mentioning that uh, as clinicians, you know we both care deeply deeply about patients with mental health disorders obviously, and uh, whether we're, we're involved in their care as researchers or as clinicians um, to me there there's there's really no, no distinction whatsoever, and we do our best to help to help these individuals um, I'm beginning to see you know, at the end of, for example, in the United States, t- television commercials for various medications that patients who participated in clinical trials are being thanked uh, in these television commercials. Um, what, what can you say about your involvement with patients in clinical trials, um, their, their willingness to, to undergo various uh, experimental forms of therapy And um, what what do you see uh, in terms of the future of expanding the participation of patients with mental health disorders in clinical trials, not only psychiatric trials, but trials in, in, in other therapeutic fields as well?
1: Yeah. Well, I think you mentioned earlier that there has been a stigma around mental illness in particular and about seeking help for mental illness. That really has gotten better. And what I'm seeing now is there are a lot more people who are coming forward and volunteering for help and volunteering for clinical trials. Uh, Along with that, there also has been a stigma around research. You know, People talk about, I don't wanna be a guinea pig or something like that. But again, COVID has really helped us here. I think there's been a lot of positive press around the research that led to these vaccines and clinical trials got a real boost. So now people are really positive around research as well. I think the ways that we identify patients and recruit them for clinical trials has also evolved, obviously with the rise of social media. You know, it used to be, I would put an ad in the newspaper or an ad on the radio, and that was how I found patients. Now we we use the internet and social media. Um, so I think it's really evolved quite a bit. I think there's been a lot of positive press. There are some organizations now that are working with patient advocacy groups uh, to reach out and find people and, and put a you know, positive spin on participating in research. I think another thing that we're looking at, too, is our, our definition of uh, our goals and what we're trying to accomplish has really evolved as well. We used to look at symptom reduction as our goal for treatment. And that's still kind of what the FDA looks at by and large. We have these symptom-driven rating scales. But we are now going beyond that and we're starting to look at things like wellness and resilience and functional outcomes, functional measures and quality of life. And I think that's really what it's all about. When you talk about really caring about patients, what we really wanna do is help people to have the best quality of life and the best function that they can and the best sense of health and wellness. So
0: a lovely way to end it, because as we both know, symptom reduction doesn't always correlate with quality of life improvement. Uh, and I think the grand slam is to is to obviously have both. Um, Andy, you know, Dr. Cutler, I, I really want to thank you for your uh, participation in our podcast today. Um, I really deeply appreciate your, your insights, and and we could continue this uh, um, for a long time, but I think we have hit the highlights for our, our audience. So thanks again, Dr. Cutler, for participating. All the best to you. Um, good luck in your future research.
1: Thank you so much. What a pleasure and an honor it is to be here with you.
0: Well, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of MD Talk in which we explore the most important issues impacting clinical trials, patients, and the future of medical research. For past and future episodes, follow us at mdgroupintl on Twitter. You can find us on LinkedIn and subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll see you next time. Goodbye.